This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. That's some good music. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to episode 454 of IAQ Radio. It's Friday, March 31st, 2017, and this week we welcome John and Lydia Lapoterre of IAQ Solutions in Orlando, Florida, and also the we call them the IAQA Presidential Couple. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. IAQ Radio marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services or products. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. All right, let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Hello, everybody. I'm sorry to report there was no correct answer to last week's IQ Radio Trivia Question. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for today, Friday, March 31st, 2017, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company, creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Now for today's IQ Radio Trivia Question. Which agency is responsible for licensing and regulating mold assessors and mold remediators in Florida? Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. This week, we welcome once again John and Lydia Lapoterre. Together, they own and operate Orlando, Florida-based indoor air quality solutions since 2001. John is a building envelope and indoor environmental consultant specializing in building product failure investigations, forensic water intrusion investigations, and building envelope failure investigations. John and Lydia also both provide indoor environmental assessments on mold and odor investigations, indoor air quality, mold, and odor. And John is also the current president of the Indoor Air Quality Association. Do we have him on the line? Yes, we're here. Welcome. Hi, Hi, Lydia and John. Great. Good to have you. Looking forward to a great discussion here today. I wanted to start out with um, Florida, Florida business. How is, you know, 2008 was rough on on Florida in particular, um, Vegas, other areas of the country. Is Florida back completely from the 2008 um, recession? Absolutely. Uh you know, it hit very, it hit very hard here. So a lot of small businesses went out of business. Uh, the building industry went completely dead. From uh, some counties pulling hundreds of building permits a month to none for uh, in one county, no building permits pulled for for several months, three four months. Wow. But uh, now we're back. The building is going crazy. Uh, we're proud to say urban sprawl is plaguing our countryside. <laughs> Are they are the home prices back um, to where they were? Yes, yeah, and climbing. We're going to do the same thing again. It's, it's it's what we do in the construction industry. You know, we continue to build and raise prices, um, and then the the bottom falls out. And we give it a few years, and we start over again. And and you you were a builder at one point, right, John? Yes, uh, I was the the director of construction and warranty for Central Florida for a national production builder 
Um, so yeah, I, I built single family, multifamily, light commercial. Um, had many people working for me, and then of course on the warranty side, uh, we handled all of the defects. By by managing both sides, I think it ended up uh, being a perfect background for what we do now, which is consulting for the failures of buildings. It's excellent. Now, in two thousand and one, you and Lydia, Lydia, did were you um, a part of the business from the? Beginning from 2001, were you also involved uh, as closely as you are now? I was involved, but not as closely as I am now. I was a science teacher at that time, so it took me a couple of years to actually go full-time with John. Oh, uh, you were teaching. No wonder I like you so much. You were a teacher, huh? <laughs> All right. That's good. All right, and then last but not least, Florida is also known for regulations, unfortunately, and um, you've got a licensing law in Florida for mold remediation. I have not heard good things. Um, I'm wondering if um, either one of you would like to comment on how things are going with the mold licensing law. Well, it's it's intact. It's not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, to <clears throat> advertise and provide mold remediation or mold assessment, uh, you have to be licensed. The license is to verify your training, your insurance. Um, it, it's a, it, it was intended to be a good program. Where the wheels fell off is in defining who requires a license. And the loophole is where it defines if you're being supervised, you don't have to have a license. And the intent was to make sure that somebody can be trained by a licensed individual on the job and eventually become a licensed individual and perform assessments on their own. What's happened is the state has decided that supervision can be anyone with a license anywhere in or out of this country supervising anyone that they may or may not have even met doing anything anywhere in the state. Hmm. So it's, it's rendered the requirement for a license almost unnecessary. You know, I'm wondering, with respect to the licensing, you know, in my experience, cleaning a mechanical system, whether it's moldy or not, is, um, you know, it's pretty important to indoor environments, and there's a lot of uh, fly-by-night, you know, duck suckers out there, and there's some there's some very good ones that that do it properly. Why do you think mold got the focus it did when things like mechanical systems cleaning, uh, disaster restoration professionals? You know, when when you guys get hit with a a hurricane, anybody with a truck and uh, you know a, a shop vac can become a restoration contractor. I don't I don't think they have any licensing for that. Why did they choose to focus on mold? Well, you bring up a couple of good questions. So first, restoration contractors in states that have frequent national disasters were taking advantage of homeowners, property owners, and insurance companies by exaggerating the extent of mold damage. It, it obviously was in the best interest of a restoration contractor to throw up a little bit of visqueen and say behind that wall, is a lot of bad stuff. They typically throw out the term black mold. Um, they'll describe it as if it's growing like ivy behind the walls. And then they'll provide a considerable amount of expensive restoration. The state decided that it was in the best interest of consumers and the insurance industry to have a separate independent third party provide that assessment that didn't have a financial interest in the extent of the damage. Um, so we ended up with the licensing, and it, when you listen to it, the, the intent is, is great. It, it sounds wonderful. To switch that over to restoration, what we're seeing now after the last hurricane is that they're minimizing the impact of mold, and the restoration contractors are assessing on their own and over-exaggerating the extent of Category 3 water to the extent that they're shutting down entire buildings and declaring from top down 
the total contamination with Category 3 water with all of the building material and personal belongings needing to be removed. So it, it may be soon that you'll see restoration contractors requiring a license. Hmm. Hopefully they'll see that it didn't work real well with mold and there's really no need for the government to get involved in, and mandate an independent third party. I, I think it should be more insurance industry driven that they get independent verification of, of the extent of any damage, whether it's from category three or mold. Now is, is mold excluded from policies in Florida or, or is there a cap on the amount they'll, you know, that an insurance company will pay for the mold remediation? I'm not really very familiar with insurance policies, uh, but in most cases, I'm told there's a $10,000 cap, and uh, each policy is written different with different language that may or may not include or exclude um, the loss. So what we always tell our client is, we don't know what your insurance says, and we're not going to look at it. We will simply determine the cause and origin and extent of the damage. Um, we, we do that for any of our clients, whether it's an insurance company or a homeowner or property management company. Uh, we just call it like we see it and let someone else decipher whether or not it's a covered loss. Cliff, I just wanted to make – go ahead, Cliff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hi, guys. Um, just a follow-up or clarification. I think one of the reasons that the contractors go for, restoration contractors go for – the category three is there's no limit on that. You know, right. that's water damage and, and so on and so forth. So they have the whole policy limit there rather than a $10,000 cap. And certain documents play into that. You know, the, uh, you know, the S 500, you know, has a time limit that says, you know, water miraculously changes contamination categories over time. And, uh, you know, then they have more to, to shoot at. I'm right. And in, in what we're seeing here in Florida is the restoration contractors, instead of responding to a loss after a hurricane, they're identifying what's wet and then leaving it for the S500 duration and then automatically declaring it Category 3 and wanting to remove everything. Hmm. Right. It's now definitely this... in their best interest to not respond and and dry it's in their best interest to let it sit and then rip it out that's it's a very unfortunate change that we're seeing in the industry and, and that's not all restoration i don't I mean i don't i don't think you want to say all restoration contractors are doing that but maybe maybe i'm wrong no you're, you're absolutely right joe so for example after hurricane matthew lydia and i were working our way up and down the coast we had buildings that were fully restored and fully occupied by the first of the year, while there are other buildings with other contractors that are still uh, in, in litigation over the extent of Category 3 water loss, where the ones that were completely occupied had no reference to Category 3 water loss. They were professionally restored and immediately reoccupied. Cliff? Yes, uh, thanks, Joe. You know, I think the one thing that's really, really important, and I, I need to ask you this question, John, is... Is the S-500 the reason that contractors are able to exploit these situations because of the chart that's in there that talks about this category uh, one water becoming category three water over time? Unfortunately, it is the specific reference that they use. Okay. You know, and I hope that you realize it's incorrect. Yeah, in my in my opinion, it's it's made up science. You know, it's you know typically, you know, category three meant that you know had fecal contamination in it, and and so on and so forth. And I'm just trying to figure out where the you know the fecal contamination came from in you know hurricane water. Well, I I can tell you in one case, in a five story condo unit, the fecal matter came from a roof leak and miraculously spread throughout all of the units, even the ones that weren't impacted from the roof leak. So the, the stretch and the fight is ongoing and, quite frankly, ridiculous and based on 
the S five hundred's description of duration for the change in category. Hmm. Well, that's, that's horrible. Let's, that was a Jim Holland thing. <laughs> let's let's jump back over <laughs> to uh, mold assessment and remediation for a minute, and um, I'm wondering, with respect to mold, it seems like there's almost like there's two industries down there. One is a group of people that focus on just mold. And then you have restoration contractors who do, you know, water damage and fire and, and all these other things, but also do a little mold as well. Is, is that accurate to say, John, or, is, or am I seeing it wrong? Well, I think we have a very strong restoration uh, field that focuses on water and mold. Um, you have some that will do fire, but a lot of the guys don't like to do fire. And then uh, there's a, an even smaller group that will do the forensic and an even smaller group that will do um, clandestine lab. So I would say our primary restoration field would be water and mold. And do, do you have people that just do mold? Uh, I don't think so. I think they'll do as much water primarily as they can. Okay, but then you have a group of people that just do mold assessment as well, and and I'm wondering. Well, first I want to I want to ask and and let listeners know. First of all, you're doing an IAQA webinar called Mold Assessment in Accordance with the ASTM D seven three three eight. I think that's coming up pretty soon, and I'm wondering if you could you know tell listeners a little bit about what that talk's going to be about and how common is it for people in your experience anyway, in that area of the country, to follow this particular standard for mold assessment? Well, unfortunately, it's it's rare that they follow it or even know about it. Um, it's, it's been around for quite some time. It's an excellent standard. It uh, specifies the need for identifying the cause and origin um, and, and spelling out the extent of the damage. It needs to be the go-to standard for all mold assessors. Uh, unfortunately, many, if not the vast majority of mold assessors in the state of Florida approach mold by collecting a few air samples for mold spores um, or maybe a surface sample and confirming the genus of the mold that's either disturbed and in the air or undisturbed and on the wall. Um, the, the ASTM describes the process of evaluating the building, interviewing the client, and determining the specific cause and origin and the extent of damage. Uh, that's really as simple as a mold assessment is, but there are many out there that don't feel qualified to determine um, the cause and origin, don't feel comfortable determining the extent of damage, and feel more than comfortable simply declaring that there is or is not mold. Uh, Typically, if they're calling you for a mold inspection, the client's pretty sure they have mold. They really need to know why the mold is there, how to get rid of the mold, how to prevent it from coming back, and how big of a mold problem it is. I want to, um, I've got a listener text that I want to just mention because it, it does get confusing. So with, with the IICRCS 500, the water damage standard, they have categories of water, one, two, and three. And with the IICRC S520, the mold standard, they have conditions, condition one being normal fungal ecology, two being settled spores, and three being actual growth. So thanks for, the, I don't know if we slipped and uh, switched from one to the other, but just to make sure all listeners are on the same page. Now, the next question I have is, how common is it in your experience anyway in the Florida area, and, and I guess people realize you're also very active in the chapter there and you're IAQA president, so you've, you you know a lot of these folks and um, you get involved with a lot of the conferences in the area. In fact, you spoke at the recent Indoor Environmental Science Forum. How common is it for people to follow the S520 during mold remediation as opposed to like the OSHA guidance or the EPA guidance or, you know, some other guidance? Well, I think they cite many of the different standards. 
as far as following them, um, it's it's probably more rare than you would imagine that somebody actually follows um, the S520. They're going to be aware of it, uh, but they might be equally as aware of the New York City Department of Health guidelines. I, I find it very rare that any restoration contractor that I speak with has actually read the S520 and is prepared to follow the S520. And do you recommend using that standard on your projects, or do you have um, your own scope of work and uh, project design that you have people follow, or is it some mix of these different, reg- um, not regulate? well, there's this Florida regulation, but the guidance documents? Well, we don't reference any other guidance documents um, for our mold remediation jobs other than um, the NADCA ACR. But we also feel that each remediation project should be designed with a specific end goal. And that end goal is going to be specifically uh, based on the, the client and the client's sensitivity. So we can have a situation where we have a very sensitive client and a very small issue. But because it's a sensitive client, it becomes a much larger issue. We could also have what some would call a pretty good-sized mold problem, but a house full of healthy young adults. Um, We still treat it to the minimum standard of practice, which would be the S520, containment, HEPA-filtered makeup air, directional airflow, and the same cleaning standards. But if we have somebody sensitive, Lydia and I will write a much more specific cleaning protocol. So it's not really a one-size-fits-all. It's the S520 would be the minimum standard of practice, and then Lydia and I raise the bar based on our client sensitivity. Cliff? Um, What tools do you use for mold assessment, John? We use a particle counter, um, high-powered flashlights, a camera, um, moisture meters, uh, boroscopes, thermal cameras, uh, but by and large, I would say the primary tool is a flashlight and a particle counter. Okay, and what do you need a flashlight? What do you need a high-powered flashlight for? Well, we, do you we've use it in a unique seen, way? Uh, yeah, we've seen mold inspectors use camera flashlights. I mean, uh, phone flashlights, and, and you really can't see much. With a high-powered flashlight, you can actually shine it across the surface of walls and furnishings and see a lot more than you ever could with the naked eye. So it's, it's really critical for us. We even carry a UV light that sometimes we'll use for uh, uh, different building materials and look for uh, fluorescence. And so the flashlights are, are a huge tool. I couldn't imagine trying to perform a, a, a solid visual inspection without it. Gotcha. Thanks. And do you also take samples on your projects, or do you never sample, sometimes sample? I would say very rarely. Um, uh, you, you caught us on in a unique day. Yesterday, maybe the day before, Lydia and I had a client who is hospitalized. Um, they found mold in her lungs, and they wanted to determine whether or not the house, the condo, would be safe for her to return to. So Lydia and I provided a visual inspection. We found mold in the supply ducts, mold in the the air handler. We found the lanai that she likes to relax in, the outdoor screen in lanai. The screen was covered in mold. Um, But what's unique to this particular house is she has a, a bad reaction to aspergillus, very unfortunate in the state of Florida. And the house is is borderline hoarder. Some might even just say it's a hoarder house. Hmm. And when you have a hoarder house and you have someone that's sensitive, and behind everything and on top of a lot of stuff is a thick layer of accumulated dust, the house itself doesn't have to be producing mold spores. It's already a vast accumulation of mold spores. So if she's moving through the house and she disturbs stuff, she's going to be exposed to an elevation of dust, which inevitably will contain mold, 
And with aspergillus being one of the most common molds in Florida, there's a very good chance that she could actually have a reaction to what's settled out in her home and not necessarily what's being produced. So in this particular case, we had to take some samples to confirm our hypothesis that there was an issue with the settled dust and not with the actual growing mold. John, I've got a text question from a listener. I think it's a good question. What's a quality particle counter in your mind? <laughs> well, kind I, I a... will go as far to say that a six-channel particle counter is best for indoor air quality and mold. And the, the key with a mold inspection is the correlation between the, the overused spore trap and the 2.5 particle. So the spore traps are typically going to be designed with a capture efficiency of a 2.4 size particle which means that they're going to capture 2.5 particulate matter most efficiently. So if you want to corroborate what's in the air with an air sample, you look at PM 2.5. That doesn't mean that's all that's in the air. That just means that the spore trap is most efficient at capturing that. And if you have an elevation of 2.5 with a good particle counter, a good six channel, then you'll have a good idea what's in the air. But a six channel is going to measure from small to large. Uh, Lydia, correct me if I'm wrong. Point three. Mm -hmm. Point three, point five, one point zero, two point five, five and ten, and that's micrometer in size. And we run it for a minute and uh, basically will give us the different channels and uh, the particulate counter will channel these uh, particles per size and it gives us an idea of what's in the air. And then, then they asked what, what brand or model. You know, this is a question I have because I see I see some less expensive brands out there now. Like I've got I've got a couple here on my desk that are two, three hundred dollar low cost sensors. And then, you know, you'll see like X Tech has one out now. I think it's thirteen hundred dollars and they, they have six channels on that. And then you've got your lighthouse, which is six channels and then of course one of our sponsors is particles plus which they've got a, a very good six channel um, laser particle counter i'm wondering do you have any recommendations as far as for an indoor environmental professional what level they should have well any professional should have a high quality professional um, particle counter and those are going to be your flukes your lighthouses your particles uh, plus those are going to be the higher-end, more reliable particle counters. Now, with our remediation contractors that we work with, they're actually purchasing uh, lower-end particulate counters for their field use to check to make sure that they're ready for their clearance. And that, uh, in that case, you know, you really don't need the six-channel, but we definitely need to uh, make sure that they're checking the particulates before we come out to do the clearance. The, the restoration contractor's job is, is particulate reduction, airborne and settled. And when you equip a restoration contractor with a particle counter, and once the demo's done and their initial clean's done, and, and they go inside their containment, they measure the airborne particles, and they use a flashlight, they can see what's settled. They can now physically see what they're doing for a living. The, the, the light goes off, their eyes are wide open, and they're amazed. They provide their second clean, and they go back and do it again, and they can see the reduction. They do their third and final clean, and they're ready. There's no need to leave the AFDs running. There's no need to wait 72 hours or 48 hours. They simply call Lydia, and we send out Kyle, and they're done. Done is done. Clean is clean. And you can measure it with a flashlight and a particle counter, and our restoration contractors are, are greatly successful. All right. Well, I've got another text here but let me let me get back to that in just a minute i've got one more question i want to ask before we break for halftime here and cliff if you want to jump in just let me know i i've been following a a standard from astm for years now <clears throat> excuse me it's the um, astm d7297 and that's the standard practice for evaluating residential indoor air quality concerns now my thought is, you know, that indoor air quality is a broader topic, so 
rather than just focusing on mold, I look at indoor air quality in general. Is that a standard you would use as well, or do you just, you know, I guess it depends on what people call you for. What kind of calls do you get? Do you ever get, you know, I don't know why, but I don't feel good in this house, or is it always, I got mold, or I think I have mold, test my air? Well, we typically won't respond to, I think I have mold, test my air. Um, that's, that's not our cup of tea, if you will. So what we tell them is it may not be mold. You're reacting to something in your built environment. Let us figure out what it is by looking at the entire house, inside and out. We do follow the D7297. Uh, that would be our, our, our primary standard that we follow for indoor air quality. And when Lydia talks to them, they explain to them that we're not looking at your house just for mold. You're looking, if you're looking just for mold, we would follow the 7338, and that would be if a restoration contractor calls and says there's an issue with moisture and mold, we need a protocol, we will provide them with an inspection that dictates the cause and origin, extended damage, and a floor plan that shows it. For our typical call that may come in as I think I have mold, Lydia will explain to them um, what we're going to do. And I'm going to go ahead and let Lydia explain how she convert someone that thinks they have a mold problem into allowing us to provide an indoor environmental and building envelope assessment. That would be great. Yes. Most of the calls that come in, they, they do start with mold. And I'll ask them, well, have you had a water event recently? Do you see mold in your home? And many times they say no. But that's all they really know what to ask for. So then I go into the parameters of air quality and actually what we test for and what we look for, and it totally makes sense to them that we do measure the respirable particulates. We measure the volatile organic compounds, uh, in particular formaldehyde. We measure for carbon dioxide, uh, carbon monoxide. So when I discuss with them the parameters of air quality, it totally makes sense to them. And, of course, the, a good visual assessment of the air handler, the building envelope, uh, all makes sense. So at that point, they understand what a, a good air quality assessment is rather than just a mold assessment. While we're on that topic, Lydia, how do you handle – see, I get, I get these calls from time to time, not as much as I used to, but it's, you know, I want you to test my air for mold. And it sounds like you don't like to do that. Um, you would rather go in and do a more, you know, general investigation of the indoor environmental quality. And that, unless, of course, they know there is a mold issue. How do you, you know, how do you get them to accept your way of doing it versus what they may have seen on, you know, on the Internet? Right. Well, I let them know that we, we, we do look for areas that's conducive to mold growth. And I explain to them the respirable particulates. And, you know, what the point three would probably be in, in the two and a half, a little bit larger particulates, which are the mold size particles. So I, I let them know that we do that first. I mean, we, that's a, a more valid way in finding out if you, you do have a mold issue. So uh, by the, you know, if we see that there's mold and we see that there's a humidity bloom and our particulates are, are, are high in the mold size, then there's really no need to take an air sample. We already, we already know that you have a, a mold issue. And then in many cases, we'll show them with our high-powered flashlight, well, you see this mold, it's, it's the aspergillus, it's a humidity bloom. So they're already in the know that they do have mold, the, the typical kind of mold that is part of the humidity bloom. And they're fine without taking air samples at that point. Hey, real quick, before I go to halftime, what is a humidity bloom? <laughs> well, we, I, hear uh, that, I hear that term a lot that, in, in the southern states, yeah, you know, being, being a, a Yankee. In, in a hot, humid, hot, humid south, uh, especially during the wintertime, uh, most people wouldn't think that wintertime would be the big time for uh, humidity blooms, but it's, it's the growth of what we call xerophilic mold, which is... Uh, Mold that grows with just high humidity. So if a home is not running the HVAC, the humidity stays at 60% or higher for an extended period of time, 
Molds will start growing, especially in closets, on the leather goods, um, behind furniture, at the windows. And, you know, that's basically a zero-fillet mold uh, uh, bloom. And it doesn't take much. The high humidity will trigger it. Okay. Thank you for that. We're going to stop and thank our sponsors. We'll be back in 90 seconds with the second half of our interview. We've got the presidential couple, John and Lydia Lapiter. IAQ Radio would like to thank our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com, count on us. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them, WolfSense.com. IAQ marquee sponsors are... John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com. All right, we're back. Second half of our interview. We've got John and Lydia Lapoter. John, Lydia, either one of you. I've got a question. It's, I'm, I'm a northerner, you know. I, I get down south every every now and then. I don't. I do a little work, you know, around the country, but Florida's not my, um, you know, my my stomping grounds or my area. When when you've got snowbirds that that come down there and they they just come down in the winter or maybe they just come down for a week here and there. Um, do they have to leave the mechanical system running while they're gone? Or maybe can they get away with just having a dehumidifier running while they're gone? How do you handle that? Well, that's a, that's a great question. This, this is what we tackle every year. Lydia calls it my master of your own domain speech that I have to give continuously. So for Lydia and I, we don't care about anyone's individual thermal comfort level. The only thing we care about, the only point that we try to get across to our clients, property managers, home builders, snowbirds, is that if you want the mold to go away, if you don't want it to come back, once we clean it up, you have to maintain a humidity below 60%, and we recommend a target humidity of 50. If you have 50 at the humidistat or wherever you're measuring it, then in the closets and in the corners and in other areas, you may be 55, 57, but you'll still be well below the threshold of 60 that will trigger the regrowth. Now, I can guarantee you that this is not the easiest discussion to have with people. Mm -hmm. They will tell you that they've owned many homes, and this has never happened. They They will tell you that they've lived in Florida for many years, and this has never happened. Regardless, the science is very specific and clear. If there's enough indoor relative humidity and surface water activity, mold spores will germinate on walls, furnishing, and personal belongings. We call it a humidity bloom. It's almost always going to be aspergillus. And the, the only way to prevent it from happening is to reduce the humidity. So our clients can use standalone dehumidifiers. They can run the air conditioning to dehumidify. But in the winter, when it typically happens, the air conditioning is not going to be running, and you will need supplemental dehumidification. Okay. And do you have them, like, leave the closet doors open so that, you know, they don't get cold spots that might increase that, uh, you know, the, the potential for water activity in those areas? Yes. Okay. Yeah, we have them, you know, not use window coverings over the windows. We have them crack their mini blinds. And people don't realize that the really large louvered blinds in the, the humid south are there so you can leave them open to let air movement and prevent um, the condensation on the window while still blocking the light. 
there are a lot of little things that these guys need to do. We also recommend for a lot of our clients to use humidistat-controlled bathroom fans. So instead of turning the fan on when you think you need it and turning it off when you think you've used it enough, it runs until it's fully evacuated the humidity. All right. I got a, I, I got a text here. I'm not sure exactly what the question is, but I, I have my own version of this question. With people who are living there and not necessarily gone, well, even if they're gone, and they, they're leaving their mechanical system on to, you know, give you some level of, of conditioning of the air, whether it's heating or cooling, do you recommend the fan on or the fan on auto? That is a great question. So here's my take on it. I don't care if it's on auto if you're my typical client. If you're a sensitive client, I want that fan running constantly because the more the fan runs, the more the air circulates. The more the air circulates, the more it goes through the filter, and the better the air uh, is clean. So for a sensitive client, we want more air movement, and we want it to be on on. For a typical client, auto's plenty fine. Florida, it's, it's pretty warm, so it's going to cycle on and off. The typical cycle setup for a thermostat in Florida is 10 minutes on, 10 minutes off, and it'll run some variation of that. But it typically won't run less than, you know, three minutes. But hmm. uh, it'll run well. I hope that answered the question. Well, I guess I'll, I'll follow up. Yeah, I think it did, but I also want to follow up. If it, One of the reasons I hear leaving it on can be a problem is you might create a negative pressure in your home and then draw that warm, humid air outside into the home. Do you see that as a, as a problem? Well, not as we've measured it. Typically, your house is going to be neutral. The same amount of air you're pushing out into the room, you're sucking back into the house. So in, unless it's a really old house uh, that hasn't been updated in, in any way, that's typically not going to happen in a house that was built in the last 20 years. Okay. The, the negative pressure is more apt to be created by simply kicking the switch on on a bathroom exhaust fan because that's one cup out with one cup coming in from God only knows where. Right, right. And you also recommend, in, in some cases at least, um, supplemental dehumidification added to mechanical systems. Can you talk a little bit about that with listeners? Sure. I would say for many, many of our clients, and all of our sensitive clients. The key is to create a slight positive pressure to the house by bringing in outdoor air through a dehumidifier and then introducing that filtered dehumidified air to the return plenum and then running that through the air handler to get it conditioned to whatever temperature the, the client wants. But now you've got more air coming in and you're pushing all of the bad things out and away and it's drying the house. So one intake for the dehumidifier would be from a common area of the house. The second intake for the dehumidifier would be from the outside. So the outdoor air and the indoor air mix go through a filter and then back into the air handler, through a filter a second time, and then back to the house. We can get a tremendous amount of particulate reduction doing that, and we can also easily maintain the indoor humidity. This also helps with the dilution of your VOCs and your carbon dioxide in the home. Excellent. All right, now I want to I want to go to a topic that doesn't get covered, I think, enough in in the world of training for people doing inspection <laughs> assessment, and that's health and safety. Um, I think sometimes that kind of gets glossed over. It, it's covered pretty well for the people doing remediation and and doing. Um, restoration type work but um, I want to talk first of all uh, to Lydia about this because I'm, I'm wondering if you could tell listeners about your own personal health and safety incident and what people should be doing to make sure they don't end up in the same situation you were in. Yes I can attest to it. Uh, four years ago I was in an attic doing an assessment and uh, I, did, I made a mental note of where the scuttle was, so, but then I kept going along and not really paying attention to my surroundings. I was not cognizant to what was immediately around me. 
and I ended up uh, stepping through the scuttle hole and falling onto the garage floor. Uh, the result of that uh, was eight plates in my face and two prosthetic jaw joints. So uh, lesson learned. Uh, we definitely, as assessors, need to be cognizant of what's around us, especially when you're in an attic situation or even in a crawl space situation, uh, when you're dealing with the HVAC system, we really need to pay attention. And, of course, these days, now that I'm in an attic again, uh, I pay special attention to where I'm at. And were you by yourself when this happened? No, there, there was someone else on the job site with me. Thank goodness, because that's another thing. You know, when you're entering attics or crawl spaces and, and you're by yourself, that, that can be a real problem. What, what would you recommend for people in those situations? Well, yeah, whenever you're, you're going up a ladder, uh, in this case, you, you must have someone there with you, whether it's a homeowner or a coworker. Um, the coworker that was with me on that day was my son, unfortunately. He had to witness everything that I went through. So you, you really need to, when you're in a crawl space, when you're uh, in an attic, you must have someone else right there with you. Let's move on. Um, I, want to, I want to talk a little bit about the IAQA for a moment, and then I want to go to our roundup. We've got about three or four minutes, and then I want to go to the roundup and bring in Pete Consigli. But before I do, Cliff, did you have any other questions you wanted to ask? Let me see. I guess one final question, John. Uh, what would be an acceptable level of mold? Uh, I get that a lot. So it, that's going to depend on our client, Cliff. So, for example, the lady that has been in the hospital because of exposure to um, aspergillus, and it's essentially just this side of a porterhouse, Almost nothing in her house is going to be acceptable. But the house first has to be maintainable. So for her, I had to delicately write that we had to reduce the amount of furnishings and personal belongings to a level that would make the house and housekeeping more efficient and, and attainable. Um, it, it was a difficult report to write. But for her, the level would be very, very low um, for Someone that lives in the country, like myself, the, the level can be much higher. The key is no indoor environment that could support the growth of mold is ever acceptable. But mold is always going to be there, and depending on your clients, you may have to come up with a method of filtering the indoor air, maybe in their bedroom or in their work environment, to make it a lower level of commonly occurring mold that's just in the air. I, I hope that answered it. Yep, thanks. I'm just curious, John, what what kind of levels of ASP pen, pen ASP, whatever it is, do you see in outdoors on a normal basis in Florida? That's a tough question for the guy that doesn't collect many samples. How about Lydia? <laughs> Lydia? Um, Lydia. Uh, it really, it, it runs a gamut as far as uh, aspergillus penicillium. Um, there are times, you know, I'm talking raw count. There are times when you're, you know, at 50, 60 at raw count, and there are times when there's only a few. Okay. But m most times, uh, there is some aspen in the air outside, but it really depends on the day and where you're at. All right. And recently, John, I don't know when you became president of IAQA. What, a, is it a year now? Uh, June of last year. June of last year. All right. What um, What's your goal with respect to your, your, your position now as president? What's your goal for the association? Well, IAQA education has always been a big focus of mine. So we revamped a lot of what we do in the education side for IAQA. We're offering more webinars. Uh, we're trying to have a, a great, well-balanced uh, conference. Uh, beyond that, I really want to work hard on working with the other industry organizations and start providing joint documents to where we can have a unified voice in the, the professional industry 
as opposed to each industry organization writing and drafting their own documents. I think there should be buy-in from each organization so we each have a vested interest in the direction of our industry. You know, I think it's a good time to go to the roundup because I've got the restoration industry global watchdog waiting here, so you're talking about working together. Let's go to the roundup. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw hide. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw. All right, Pete Consigli, do we have you on the line? Yeah, guys, can you hear me okay, Joe? You sound great, Pete. Yeah. Welcome so, on board. Well, I really like that. We think we got the... IQA's industry of uh, of um, uh, Ron and Nancy. <laughs> they, they, they were loved and adored. Um, well, listen. So I, I, I took a couple of notes. I got some comments, and then maybe a couple of questions that uh, John may comment on. So the first thing is, I was very happy to hear John talk about the importance of high intensity light and really these the, the visible inspection. You know, I think this is something which has fallen through the cracks in this, uh, you know, third or fourth generation of the S520 where, you know, they, they uh, some of these guys read the line by line. They they don't take uh, other things into consideration. You know, back in the day, in the early days of all of this, you know, the white glove inspection was something that was done pretty often before you would start doing sampling or post-verification. So I'm happy to, to see that. The other thing is, uh, you know, and I think Cliff and me have always advocated, you know, less is more when it comes to sampling. You know, if they if they have no objective and they don't understand what they're going to do, they're just spending a bunch of money, in my opinion, that uh, you use up all the money to figure out what the problem is, and there's no money left to, to do the remediation, particularly, you know, with these insurance policies which are capped on the mold. So, uh, you know, I, I'm, I really kind of endorse that. Uh, the other thing, too, is, and I, I'm not sure whether John commented on this or not, and this will be one of the questions I'd like him to address when I'm kind of done with my l- little roundup thing, is too often I, I think there's too much of a reliance on the S520. Now, granted, it's an ANSI's document, et cetera, et cetera, but if you go back to the day, even when the first S520 was developed, you always heard the IEPs of the day before they were called that, you know, the you know the environmental uh, inspector types that had the real credentials, you always hear them talk about that they would use a series of guidance documents to make their decisions. And no one necessarily had more weight than the other. The answer was it depends. And if you listen to guys like Ed Cross and the different risk management attorneys, they always say that this is a good position to take because anytime you zero in on just one thing and that's where the information comes from, you're liable to be beat over the head with that thing when you're on the stand or in a deposition. So they would say, well, look, we consider... Uh, you know, the S520, we consider the ACJH document, we consider the New York City guidelines back in the day, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I'd like to get some comment on that because I, I think we've lost a little bit of that. I think that's uh, something that should come back. So I got my last two things, and one of them was kind of highlighted by the last question that Cliff asked that John addressed. And this really has to do with the um, uh it has to do with what in the in the S five twenty the the second one or excuse me the second S five hundred before the first S five twenty came out they talked about you would have situations where in select populations you would deviate from the standard that's this is where the where the 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 disclaimer and some of that language in the early part of the document was developed and and I'm and and I really appreciated John's comments on that because in certain scenarios you're going to do something that you wouldn't do in 80% of the time based on uh, the, the health conditions of, of the client, uh, the, the parameters and the condition of the home or the commercial building or whatever it is. I think that's something that gets dropped through the cracks. And I think a really perfect case in point was back in the 90s when Cliff and myself were in the early days of, you know, the mold is gold, early days of that, and we were doing a lot of our old WI stuff. We listened to Phil Maury and Chin Yang and these guys talk, uh, and Phil in particular, about all the work that they did in the Polk County uh, and the Martin County court cases, which were the famous cases in the day before Melinda Ballard. And they talked about throwing out all this uh, furniture that had some mold exposure, not mold growing on it, but it happened to be in rooms where there was a lot of spores in the air. And there was a million dollars worth of furniture that had to be replaced by the... Uh, county, you know, it was an insurance company. Wow. And we wanted to know if they ever cleaned it, if there was anything that was ever done, and they kind of 
evaded the questions. It wasn't a lot known back in the day, but when push came to shove and we talked with them, what they said was they said, look, that furniture couldn't necessarily go back into <coughs> those offices because of the sensitivity of the judges and the employees that were exposed to it. But, um, and so that's why they did the settlement. But I don't think that anyone recognized in the day that maybe there could be some research, some cleaning done, certain things that could be done to see whether there was a salvage factor to that. And then several years later, Ralph Moon did some of that. He published that, uh, spoke at RA con- convention on it. And I-, I think the bottom line is maybe uh, maybe it couldn't it couldn't be used and you couldn't get it out, but it didn't necessarily mean that it wouldn't have some value. So I, I think that just the philosophy of the way John uh, answered that question and uh, some of the historical stuff we have, I think it's important that... Um, you know, it leads to my last point that John said, and I talked about with him about this about a week or so ago, is that it's important that the industry organizations work together to create a unified voice if we want to get the credibility from the government, property managers, insurance companies. And we don't have all these doc- competing documents. It's kind of like a you know territorial match of a bunch of big dogs looking for the trees to mark. And um, hopefully that can start to come together, particularly in this contentious area around drawing and around environmental issues and whatnot. And, you know, in that, in that uh, spirit, this is the reason why that uh, John and the IEQA has had a standing seat on RAA's education committee as a, in their role as an MOU partner, strategic partner, to know what we have going on. They can share what they have going on, and that kind of creates the link. And I think if stuff happens amongst the associations where many of us are crossover members in all of those, that, to me, is how we get unified voice and we get a better consensus in the industry. And I think we do it not because we're mandated to do it, because of ANSI or any other process. We do it because it's the right thing to do and it serves the greater good, which is the primary reason why most people should give back and work with their associations. And so, you know, being right and doing right are two different things. And um, okay. I, I think doing right is more important. So anyway, for whatever that's worth, I enjoyed uh, the show. And uh, John wants to comment on any of that. I'd uh, certainly encourage that. And uh, Cliff and Joe, great job as always. And Lydia, uh, I love it in Tampa when John said, boy, you, you never saw somebody make grown men cry when they had to face you because they just didn't pay attention to the protocols that they wanted the job signed off. I love that. <laughs> uh, John, do you want to comment on that? You, you do a lot of legal work. We didn't even get a, a chance to talk much about that, but... You know, Pete brought up a good point. Um, some of the, you know, the attorneys that specialize in this will will kind of tell you, you know, to, to base your your work product on maybe not just one standard, but several standards, guidelines, cognizant authorities. What are your thoughts? Well, that's a great question. So on our reports, we list 18 different documents. The 18 different documents include the two ASTM standards, the S500, um, the S520, but the 18. And it's not uncommon for during the deposition for them to ask me to show up with all of these. And each one of these documents, not only do I have, but they're also highlighted and they have clip notes. So when they do ask for them and they do ask to see them, they can see that I own them, I'm referencing them, and I use them. On, on the other side, sometimes when people are called in and they reference documents in their reports and they're asked to produce them during a deposition, they can't. <laughs> mm. and they often actually admit to having not read them. So if you're going to cite a reference document in a report and you end up in court, be prepared to know that document that you're referencing and be prepared to produce it. That's hey, John. Great John, tip. let me... Uh, Hey, John, what a great deal. If the guy references a document he doesn't have it and he didn't read it, I guess that, that basically cuts, his, cuts him off at the knees. Look, one of the things is that Marty King, in the early 2000s, created a document that was an ASCR document before we rebranded to REA, where he took all the existing documents at the time, really all the government documents, and he created 28 points and things they agreed on, who agreed on what. And it was a great reference document. It was like eight pages that uh, the members of RAA and ASCR really used for many years. Now, as an as a, as a, uh, interesting thing that just came up, in our convention coming up next week, we're going to have three Australians there that uh, have actually completed uh, 
all three of our advanced designations in one year. It's never been done before. The CR, the WS, and the CMP. Now, one of the requirements for the WS and CMP, which is addresses the point we're talking about, is they have to do a research paper, the WS, and it, it's, it's similar. It's called a capstone project for the uh, CMP. Well, uh, Owen Polk, who's uh, one of the Aussies, wrote a paper. This was his project, which is approved and reviewed by both Ken Larson, uh, obviously myself, and Michael Pinto, uh, uh, the reviewers on that. And it, it's, a, it's a great document that's called... Um, he does an evaluation of all the different standards on mold remediation for the Australian market by looking all the, at the global documents. Right now, we uh, actually have it under consideration to be reviewed and potentially published in CNR magazine. It's a big document. It'll probably have to be an executive summary form and then hopefully be something that goes through a more rigorous process for publication that could be published at a website. This is the kind of stuff the industry needs. And these are things that people have done as part of the certification process to give back to the industry, which is similar to what a Ph.D. has to do. They have to write a thesis to get the credentials, and then it's published, and it's part of the body of knowledge for that the industry of that discipline. So that just popped in my head as I was listening to your talk, and I, I thought it was important to mention that. Thank you, Pete. And, Cliff, before we wrap it up, any final questions from you? No, I just want to thank Pete for joining us and our other guests, John and Lydia Lapiter, it's always great to, to commiserate with them. I agree, and I, I just want to add that, you know, before we go, John, Lydia, both of you, any final thoughts, final comments for our listeners? Get involved. The, the more that you're involved with your industry associations, the better off you'll be. The best information is disseminated from these professional organizations. So get involved. And, and get these reference documents and, and know and understand them. But I wish everybody well. If anybody has any questions, uh, our door is always open. We'll, we'll put uh, contact information in the blog. Lydia, any final thoughts? Yeah, I agree with John. Uh, the more you are affiliated with your professional organizations, the more you're going to learn about our industry. And most of us need to take continuing education. So I... In my mind, uh, we should pick and choose the education that best serves what you're doing for a living and not just to get the credit hours. So really pick and choose what's going to help you become a better professional. Hey, John, before you go, uh, you, you've done a lot of building science, and personally I think that's that's the – Anybody in this indoor environmental professional world, uh, especially on the assessment side, they've got to start learning more about building science. I mean, that's that's the key to longevity, in my opinion, in this industry. Where do you go for, is there an organization? Are you a member of a group? Where do you go for more, for good information on building science issues? Uh <laughs> The, the best place is summer camp. <laughs> well, that... uh, beyond, beyond summer camp, no, I'm beyond summer camp. I don't think there's a whole lot out there, uh, but building science and and ventilation. If hey, John, John, that that's not true on that. Besides summer camp, because there's a limited group of people that get a chance to come there. So look, here's what's going on in that. Seabrook, if you go to the buildingscience.com website uh, of this seminar, Seabrook has what he calls a two-day building science fundamental, which he takes around the country. Uh, it's in five or six cities a year. He publicizes it. It's a mixed audience of builders, architects, engineers, government people, restoration guys, etc. The other thing is RAA puts on a couple, one, two times a year. We've done it, uh, done it in Australia. We have a one-day building science course that Chris Schumacher, who's very well-known and really one of Joe and John Strop's uh, protégés, that's done, that includes key information. It's a co-branded, co-copyrighted from, from uh, Building Science and uh, uh, John and, and uh, Chris, uh, available only under the REA brand. It's a prerequisite for CR and WS, and it's also approved for CEC, for ACAC, for REA, IACRC, and everything else. Those are out there. They're, and those, and you're going to get a lot. And those are readily available, John. So you know, keep keep that in mind. That's real, real important. Besides the summer camp. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And in addition to that, I would say the best reference library for 
building science is the building science corporation where joe and his guys provide free information their their reports are are easily accessible and joe does a lot of work here in the hot humid south so that's a great resource yeah, there's tons of free stuff. There's, there's the drainage planes, vapor barriers. He's got all kinds of stuff that you could download for free. The resource on that website is unbelievable. Good point. And a lot of that stuff has been used over the years for RAA. Uh, he wrote a great chapter in the WLS, uh, uh, WLS uh, program, you know, our, our body of knowledge. And a lot of that information has been given out to our members over the years. So very, very good point. Guys should go to the website. A lot of good detail. And I'll add one. Go to the DOE Department of Energy Build America program. They're they're really doing a great job of uh, beefing up that particular website, and it's it's geared toward energy. But you know that's that's where it's at with the building science world. You you've got to understand uh, you've got to understand energy as well and um that's a great resource and pete I, I i'm glad you brought up those uh seminars that joe does because they're they're really good for people too and i think that's a a, a great resource all right well, thank you hey, hey joe yeah. one last thing the other big government website which is great for this is, is nips n-i-p-s that's called the Nas- national institute of building sciences they have all kinds of councils they put an annual convention on every year in January in Washington, D.C. So a lot of government stuff, and uh, but tons of stuff there. You can go to their website, and and uh, you can register for their newsletter and little stuff like that. They don't bombard your your inbox like crazy. You know, once a month you'll get some stuff, and as the build-up to their conference, they'll send stuff a little more regularly. That's a really, really good reference also. There you go. Thank you, Pete. This is Radio Joe saying thanks to this week's guest, John and Lydia Lapater. Thanks so much for joining us. It's always great. Good to have you being interviewed and, and uh, you know, always great to see you listening in as well. We, we really appreciate it. My co-host, the Z-Man. Thank you, Cliff. As always, uh, we'll be back next Friday, of course, at the uh, at the controls. John, you got to have faith. The restoration industry global watchdog, Pete Consigli, and of course, most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. Had a lot of nice uh, live listeners on today. Great, great talk. Uh, great comments. Excellent questions. And we'll see you next Friday for the next episode of IAQ Radio. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.